Good morning. And let's, let's begin class with prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful again that you are our Father and for Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your love and for your truth and for your amazing way you run your universe. And we ask to be ever uh, more closely drawn into your methods and principles and how we live our lives, that we can be lights in this world. Draw, draw close to us with your spirit now and enlighten our minds as we study, that we can be truthful and faithful to your kingdom, we pray in your holy name. Amen. We are starting a new quarterly, a new study guide, and the study guide this quarter is Isaiah. And a little history, a little background history for you about Isaiah. Uh, in 930 B.C., Israel, the nation, split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. That's 930 B.C. Uh, 722 B.C., almost 200 years later, the northern kingdom of Israel is destroyed or fell to, to Assyria, and the tribes are scattered and dispersed. In uh, a period of, of invasions between 598 and 582 B.C., about 140 years or so later, uh, Judah fell captive to Babylon. And then later after that, um, of course, they had their return under the Persians. Isaiah was the son of Amos uh, and related to the royal family. He started his ministry toward the close of Uzziah's reign during the co-regency with Jotham. Uh, that was sometime around four, 745 to 739 B.C. And so his term of ministry was about 60 years and spanned the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And just a little background if you kind of see what's going on there. And this is during the, during the uh, reigns of um, basically uh, just before the fall of the, uh, the, king, uh, the, the kingdom of the north, and during uh, Judah's reign still in the south. So in the introduction, I want to read the second to the last paragraph of the introduction. It says, Isaiah counseled kings. When the slender thread of God's remnant line was confined to one city doomed by Assyrian legions, it was Isaiah's prophetic words that strengthened King Hezekiah to look for the miracle that was Jerusalem's only hope. If Jerusalem had fallen then, rather than to the Babylonians a century later, the Assyrian policy of scattering conquered peoples would have vaporized the national identity of Judah. Thus, there would have been no Jewish people from whom the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would arise. Well, I, I, I think they've honed in on the central theme of the Old Testament. And the central theme of the entire Old Testament is, right after the fall of humankind, right in Genesis 3, the promised Messiah, God says, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. A Messiah is coming to save humanity. And the rest of the Old Testament is God working to bring the Messiah and Satan working to stop God's plan in a variety of ways. Prior to the flood, Satan worked to harden all human hearts that nobody would work with God at all. And at that time, he almost succeeds. There's only one human family still working with God, the eight people who get on the ark. But God acts in mercy at that time, not in vengeance, but in mercy to keep open the avenue for Messiah by putting into sleep death all those who'd hardened against him to, because the plan of salvation needed to be worked out. Shortly after the flood... God lets us know that the Messiah is coming through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That the whole human race is no longer the branch for the, but this one branch of the human family. And so the Bible hones its attention down 
onto this one branch. That's why we focus, and the Bible's focus is where it is, because it's on the battle between God and Satan for God's plan to bring Messiah. And you'll see, as the lesson points out, in this particular instance, Satan was working through the Assyrians to try to destroy the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Got ten of the tribes wiped out already. Now let's get those last two. Can't, but he doesn't get them. God intervenes, Hezekiah's faithfulness, protects them. The Syrians get dominated by the Babylonians. And then we will come to some of the promises later uh, where God basically says, if you have faith in me, then you will have all these blessings. And if you don't, I'll have to work with a remnant coming out of captivity. But the captivity in Babylon actually kept the remnant and the uh, avenue for the Messiah. So if you think about this, the big lessons here is one when we, is how we understand the Old Testament and the stories and what's going on there. It's not just about those people. There's a bigger plan. Without Jesus, no humans are saved. All humans are lost. So that's the ultimate focus for God's actions in Old Testament is bringing Messiah to save the whole human race or all those who will, will cooperate. But there's another lesson in the story here of Isaiah with Hezekiah as well, and that is... When you are in a circumstance, imagine yourself being a citizen of Judah, a citizen of Jerusalem back in Hezekiah's day. And what are you going to see? You're going to see an Assyrian army of 180,000. Understand how big that army was. 180,000, circle your city. Uh, The ten tribes of the north have already been taken off into captivity. Um, And from a human perspective, what's your likely outcome? Remember, they were starving to death in the city at the time. Uh, they were eating rats, according to the scriptures. They were eating rats. Uh, uh, so there's these stories of their own eating their own children uh, during this time. That's how the siege was so horrible. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Okay, uh, cannibalism was being practiced there, and, and and so if you're in that circumstance, what are you seeing? You're thinking you're feeling a lot of hope. No, and yet. God still delivered them. So the lesson of Hezekiah is when he turned to the Lord, brought out the singers, praised the beauty of holiness, God sent his angel, turned the, the Assyrians all around. They got all conflicted. They ran away in fear. And if you remember, they left all this plunder behind, food and riches and everything. So in Isaiah's day, God was working to keep open the avenue for the first advent of Messiah. What is God working for in our day? For the second advent of the Messiah. So what would activities from God today look like that would be fulfilling God's purpose of preparing the world for Jesus to come? What would those activities look like today? If we want to see, is, is 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 this from the Lord or is this from his enemy trying to oppose him? What would those activities, you understand what he's trying to achieve? He's trying to get the world ready for the coming Messiah. Well, I want to suggest one, obviously, sharing of the true gospel, which is the kingdom of love, which reveals God's character of love and his design methods of how he's, so we worship the creator, not the dictator and the salvation brought by Christ. So the true gospel message would be part of his preparing the world. Yes. Okay. The principles of God's of God being lived out in the lives of his people, that we present truth and love, leave people free, thus we give God glory in the way his character is revealed and how we treat others. That would be part of preparing or being lights in the world. We'll expand that more as the lesson goes on. Uh, 
loving others, including our enemies. Greater love is no man that he gives life for a friend. And this is how we know what love is. Christ gave his life. So loving others, those who mistreat us, misrepresent us. In other words, we don't take up the worldly implements of war and go on the war path to advance our agenda. That's a trap. We, truth, love, freedom, and unpack that more. And all of this exposes, as we live godly methods, it exposes or draw contrast between truth and lies, the creator and a dictator, uh, between the dark ages, false God, and the true Christianity of Jesus Christ. And we call people out of legalistic, ritualistic religion into a kingdom of love, truth, and freedom, how we actually live our lives, how reality works. Activities from Satan, if you want to see what those activities look like, that obstruct the true gospel, the bringing us together in one heart, one mind, uh, all under one, as Jesus says, we come into that unity, would be any false religion that misrepresents God as a dictator, imperialistic person, or evolutionism, or secularism. There is no God. We're just on our own. All these lies and falsehoods are part of the obstruction of the, of the preparing of the people. Any process that instills fear, any process happening in the world that's primary effect is to make you afraid, that's the roar of the lion. The devil at the end of time is like a roaring lion. Lion's roars don't kill. Lion's roars instill fear. That's the goal. Because fear, when you become more fearful, you become more concerned with self. That's right. Neurobiologically, it's true as well. And as we become more fearful and more selfish, we have less love. And we divide and fragment. We find people who share our fears. And we join together in our tribe so that we can defend ourselves against the enemies who are not like us. And society divides. And, and, and we, whether it's political, national, racial, um, gender, it doesn't matter. The, the message of fear is the message of selfishness, which causes division and fragments and prevents the unity of love. Do you hear messaging like this? We're going to come more into that as well. So I'm going to suggest that like Hezekiah, we face threats from sources that we personally don't have power to defeat in society today. And then we must also use the weapons that God has provided us. Big weapons, I would suggest one, is the shield of trust slash faith. Think about when you're threatened and you trust God with the outcome. It shields you from being terrified. That's what it does. As you trust God, God's got this. Your fear level goes down. So the shield of faith or the shield of trust shields you from being overwhelmed from the roar of the lion. And truth. Truth is a sword. We attack the lies and sever those those lies that infect us and the people we love with the sword of truth. Revealing truth is set people free. But only those who love the truth will be freed by the truth. Those who don't love the truth, when you present the truth, will attack you for presenting the truth. And we see this happening in our ministry all the time. Friends email us and send us letters from all over the world about how they present truth. They get attacked by various people 
Try to silence voices. See, when you have truth on your side, you don't fear investigation, you don't fear evidence, and you don't fear dialogue, reasoning, questioning. You love it because it only helps you grow in truth. But if you have no truth, if, you're, if, you're, if you have a position that is built upon lies that are designed to incite fear, if somebody brings truth, you have to silence the voice. You have to censor it. You can't have that truth presented because it will free people from your fear control. And you see those method of Satan. So you watch for these methods happening in the world of censorship, of silencing disagreeing voices rather than inviting them in for an open dialogue and discussion of evidence and leaving people free. You can see the, the movement's quite different. Uh, title of the lesson for the first lesson is Crisis of Identity. And the lesson points out in the Sabbath lesson that cows know the way home and a lost child will, in a store somewhere, will recognize its own mother from all the other mothers in the room. Okay, But the Judeans had forgotten that they belonged to God. My question is, what about Christianity today or Christians today? Do we know our identity? Or have we also forgotten our creator God and have instead identified with a Roman imperial dictator God who must punish sin in order to be just? So how do we show that we know who we are, children of the true God, the creator God of heaven? How do we do we do, we do that? We're, we're, we're actually members of God's family when we are baptized into the church and now call ourselves Christian. Now we're members of the true God's family. Is that how it works? If so, then does that mean everyone who calls themselves Christian is a member of, or actually children of God? Does that mean that there are no children of God who call themselves something other than Christian? Or are there children of God who don't actually call themselves Christian? So would calling ourselves Christian differentiate us from children of God versus children of the enemy? It actually doesn't. Isn't that interesting? Oh, it's by denomination. We have to have the right denominational uh, Christian slash. And that does that differentiate the children of God? No, it doesn't. Uh, how about Sabbath keeping? We're told in the Bible that the Sabbath is a sign of God's own people. Certainly, Sabbath keeping would be a way to differentiate the children of God from those who aren't. Like those who put Jesus on the cross, wanted him down. No, no, they had the Sabbath, but they weren't his children. He actually called those people who kept the Sabbath, They're, you're of your father, the devil. They were children of Satan. even though they. So the Sabbath doesn't differentiate the children of God from the children of the enemy. Jesus did say this, though, John 13, 34 and 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Is that, if we actually see genuine godly love, will that differentiate God's true children from the children of the world who operate on love or operate on survival drives. That's what the world does. This is an actual indicator when you see genuine love in action. But genuine love is more than compassion. It's more than sympathy. Genuine love is an intelligent love. It's truth-based, a love that works in harmony with God and how he actually built reality to operate. Love motivates to action, actions that are designed to bring healing. And the truth that is wielded in love, the Bible refers to as a sword or scalpel. 
that cuts away lies, falsehoods, and practices that are out of harmony with God's design, just like a surgeon will cut away gangrenous flesh. Love will use the sword of truth to cut out of our lives all practices and people who are being used because there are some being used by the enemy to destroy. There are people out there who are toxic, folks, who are destructive, who are hardened against God and are working to destroy the people of God. And using the sword of truth determines in governance of us that while I love you and would love fellowship with you, that requires that you meet a certain modicum of maturity or healthiness before I can actually safely interact with you. You know how many people don't know this? And they allow toxic people to ruin their, their, their lives over and over again. It's not an act of love for either side to do that. Consider this quote out of the book of Acts of the Apostles. What do you think of it? We're going to unpack it. It says, the church is God's appointed agency for the salvation of men. It was organized for service, and its mission is to carry the gospel to the world. Purpose of the church? Carry the gospel to the world. Service to carry, do service, and the acts of service are acting out the gospel which is the good news of God's character of love, which is the principles that life operate upon other-centeredness. So the gospel can be presented as an idea, but it also is a practice, the good news. This is how God works. As long as we teach a legal religion and take a Christianity that looks like a Roman system of legal authority and punishment to the world, we are actually not taking the gospel to the world. We're actually promoting the false system that enslaves minds to the world. Continue on with the quote. From the beginning, it has been God's plan that through his church shall be reflected to the world his fullness and his sufficiency. The members of the church, those whom he has called out of darkness into his marvelous light, are to show forth his glory. What darkness? Lies about? About God. And light, light, into, into the light. What, what light? Truth, of course, but, but light. Yes, of course. Is, is that, does, does that any, ring any bells? Is your processor going ding, ding, ding? Like, Jesus is the light which lightens all men. You remember that? John 1? And what does he lighten all men about? What's his prime core mission as far as enlightenment goes? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There you go. So he, the church is the place where we are to find the light of the truth of God's character as Jesus revealed it to be, which frees people, excuse me, <coughs> which frees people from the darkness of Satan's lies about God. And then continue on the quote, the church is the repository of the riches of the grace of Christ. And through the church will eventually be made manifest even to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, the final and full display of the love of God. Are you seeing the final and full display? This is um, out of Acts of the Apostles, page 9. When did Jesus give the final and fullest in his life display of God's love? When he was with his friends or when he was with his enemies? 
When do you think the church is going to give the final and fullest display of God's love? When things are going well or when things are going poorly? Eventually, the church will eventually be made manifest with the principle, the final and full display. I think this is where we're heading. We're entering into the final movements before Christ comes in which we will be tempted by injustice, by wrong, by deceit, by fraud, by all types of outrageous behaviors. Just understand, Jesus' trial was an outrage. It was a, it was a complete violation of the laws. It was a system of injustice. They bribed people to, to perjure themselves. Everything about it. He was an innocent. And yet, and he was being tempted to respond to the outrage by practicing the principles of the world. And instead, he loved his enemies. I think the church is going to find itself in a very similar phenomenon happening in the world with all types of outrage. I'm telling you, if you can't see it, your eyes aren't open. It's happening all around us right now. And it's at this time, as these outrages are happening, that the Christians, who, those true children of God, are going to be tempted, and that's when we must love our enemies. Pray for those who spitefully use us. All right, consider this quote by one of the founders, again, Ellen White, founder of the SCA Church, focusing on our identity, how the true children of God are differentiated from those who are not. This is out of uh, Testimonies to the Church, Volume 7, page 156. Satan is always seeking to cause dissension. For well he knows that by this means he can most effectually counteract the work of God. Remember, Jesus prayed in his last prayer that we would be one. Paul wrote that uh, as we come to Jesus and we experience the rebirth and the working of the Holy Spirit, that there is unity, there is no division, there is neither male nor female, Jew or Greek, free or slave, we're all one and Christ is the head. Okay, There's a unity that comes when we practice God's principles and move toward him. Satan is the cause of dissension and division. He knows that if he can do that, he can divide and fragment. And there are two primary emotions that, uh, that he uses to incite hostility, hatred, and division. And those are fear, fear, I'm afraid, I'm afraid for self, fears, and envy. It's not fair. These two emotions drive people to see others as threats and then seek to use practices of this world to get or control or dominate others so life will be fair. You see movements in the world like this today? You see messages bombarding society that increases fear and a sense of unfairness? And do you see that in order to have fairness, we have to do more unfairness? Seriously, every one of these worldly movements that's designed to fix unfairness does it through methods that make more unfairness. It doesn't do methods of love. It, 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 we're going to help this group by hurting that group. That's how the systems of the world work. And it only causes more anger and frustration on both sides, which divides. But when we actually love each other, we defeat Satan's methods to divide. Just think about if you were out somewhere and you saw one of your grandchildren running up to you in a store without a mask on. 
Do you become afraid? Does your fear cause you to be threatened? Does your threat cause you to need to protect self? Does your threat to to self cause you to want to, to, to be angry at this child and this parent for allowing this child to run up to you in the store with no mask on? Or does your love push all that away? How about if it's some child you don't know running down the aisle of the store without a mask on? Does your fear take over? Do you get incensed? Do you want the manager of the store to educate the parent on proper role of their children? Fear makes us concerned with self and protecting self. Love makes us value others more. Continuing on with the quote. We should give, we should not give place to his devices. His devices of division, dissension, fear, envy. Christ's prayer for his disciples was that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one, that the world may believe that you have sent me. All true laborers for God will work in harmony with this prayer. In their efforts to advance the work, all will be will manifest that oneness of sentiment and practice which reveals that they are God's witnesses, that they love one another. To a world that is broken up by discord and strife. Do we see discord and strife breaking breaking the world today? Their love and unity will testify to their connection with heaven. It is the convincing, it is the convincing evidence of the divine character of their mission. I'm going to suggest to you that we show we're children of God by our love. That's how we do that. Sunday's lesson, it asks us to read Isaiah chapter 1, 2, and uh, we're going to go through verse 20. And I am going to want you to consider this, though. Not like you may have always done it in church, where we read Isaiah's message for, to a group of people 2,500 years ago as a historic message, and we look back and go, yeah, those people, they needed, they, those were bad, those were bad people. I'm glad God sent Isaiah to straighten them up. Uh, that, that we don't read it that way. I want you to consider if this Isaiah showed up at your church today and read and gave this message from God to your Christian church today, and I have edited the first 20 verses to make it appropriate to what it might sound like if Isaiah came to Christians in your church today. And, I, and I'm going to ask you after I read this, what do you think the church response would be if this is the message you heard in your church? Okay. Starting in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Christians do not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful church. A people loaded with guilt, a brood of evil doers, children given to corruption. You have forsaken the Lord. You have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turn your backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you p- persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. But the bo- from the bottom of your foot to the top of your head, nothing is healthy. Only wounds and welts and open sores that are not cleaned and bandaged or soothed with ointment. Your countries are decaying. Your cities are burned with fire and looted. Your businesses are being ruined. Right before you laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. The bride of Christ is left like an open store in a riot. Like an unlocked car during a crime spree like a city under siege, 
Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you church leaders of Sodom. Listen to the law of of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your rituals, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough baptisms, ordinations, and foot-washing services. I have no pleasure in your praise bands or your communion services. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop preaching meaningless sermons. Your prayers are detestable to me. Sundays, Sabbaths, and camp meetings. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your Christian concerts and your worship services my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even if you you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken. What do you think? If this was spoken at your church, do you think the majority would say amen and humble themselves? Is this message that I just read appropriate for the church today? Or does it is it only for ancient Judah? Why did the religious services become a burden to God back then? Why are they, in my view, a burden to God today? Because the hearts of the people aren't in them. They were meaningless, it says, done by rote, because they, people no longer understood that all the various rituals were just teaching tools, and they were no longer learning. They were carrying out religious rituals without actually growth and understanding. They became an end unto themselves. They began to value the act rather than the God who gave them the teaching tool to help them know him better. The issue in salvation is the actual condition of the heart and mind. God is working to free minds from lies and selfishness. This requires that we engage, that we think, we reason. And when we reason with God, the God of truth and love, frees us from lies and selfishness. We are one to trust, and we open the heart and trust. The spirit of love comes in, and we get new motives. We're transformed in that process. But when we don't reason, when we instead accept either lies or merely accept rituals as having some salvation benefit, I go to church on the right day, I was baptized in the right way, I get my feet washed the number of times a year that's prescribed, I eat communion in the right way, I etc., etc. If I do all the right stuff, that's how I get salvation, the mind is closed. 
This is what is, this is what was happening in Israel. And sadly, the church of the dark ages, filled with its ritualistic performances ones had, have to do. The Reformation was the process of challenging the rituals of the dark ages, challenging the teaching, getting people to think, to examine scripture, to come to understand the truth about who God was. It was a movement out of a dark system of rituals into reasoning and thinking with God, and it was a period of, of light, enlightening minds. But sadly, the Reformation ground to a halt, and much of Christianity today is, again, very similar to ancient Israel, pro forma ritual. Monday's lesson, first paragraph, says the same hands that offered sacrifices were lifted up in prayer, and and were lifted up in prayer were full of blood, that is, guilty of violence and oppression of others. By mistreating other members of the covenant community, they were showing contempt for the protector of all Israelites. Sins against other people were sins against the Lord. What do you think they mean by? By mistreating other members of the covenant community, they were showing contempt for the protector of all Israel. Why do you think they didn't say, by mistreating other people? Was it okay to mistreat people who were not members of the covenant community? I mean, that, 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 sta- that little phrase in there, it's implying, almost, it's suggesting the idea. Uh, did God, didn't God call Israel to be a priesthood and ministers to all the nations of the world? Yeah, but they were only supposed to charge others' interest, not their own people. They, that may have been their thinking. So they weren't supposed to charge their own people interest when they loan money, but they could charge non-Israelite uh, people interest. Okay, charging interest though is that the same thing as um, mistreating? Was it a mistreatment to charge non-Israelites interest? Was that mistreatment? No, it was a mistreatment charging their own people interest. Okay, why? So he's brought up an issue. I don't really. I wasn't actually thinking that this actually applies to what we're talking about here. But let's let's. Show why it doesn't. The interest question. Is it a mistreatment or is it just simply a different standard to have healthy relationships with people outside of your family? Do you charge your own wife interest if she wants to borrow some money from you? <laughs> okay. Uh, so so, so it's, it's, it is making a decision, but, but that's not mistreatment to charge somebody interest. What mistreatment would be, how about if we tilt, we, and we got this in scripture, we weight our scales so we cheat people. That's different than charging interest. Charging interest, we're being honest. Okay, I'll loan you the money, but here's the interest you're going to need to pay back. And we make a deal. That's an honest business transaction. Okay? But we weight the scales. You brought... Um, so you brought two pounds of goods for me, but I've weighted the scales and it's actually four pounds, but I'm only going to pay you for two pounds. And, and that was one of the things that the Bible says they were doing. They were weighting their scales. Was it okay to weight your scales to a non-Israelite? It was only bad if you weight your scales to a member of the covenant community. It was okay to weight your scales to the non-covenant. So this is where I was going with it. I think there were differences based on the family that you had different ways that you did honest living. But that that's not what I think that, that is being referred to. Mistreatment. Cheating. So the question I'm asking is, does the damage that happens to the cheat 
Is it different if you do it to a member of the covenant community than if you do it to a member of the non-covenant community? Your, your damage is different to you, the cheat. How about the if you steal? How about if you lie? How about if you commit murder? I murder somebody who's not a member of the co- covenant community, I will be less damaged than if I mur- murder a member of the covenant community. Or am I still damaged? Okay. Would Israel think about this idea of mistreating only members that are not of the covenant community? We'll mistreat them. Would Israel have become more godlike had they banded together as a covenant people to rape, murder, and pillage all the non-Israelites like they're raiding Viking hordes? Some might say, well, that's what they did. Some of them did do that. We get stories where they, some of them did that. Did they become more godly when they did? No, they might have done it, but they weren't becoming more godly in doing it. Think of uh, Jacob's sons, Simeon, after Dinah, that, and, and the, the whole question of the circumcision. And then they, uh, remember the, the king's son wanted to marry Dinah, okay? And how they tricked them into being circumcised and went and killed them all. Why is sinning against people sinning against the Lord? Why is sinning against people sinning against the Lord? Why did Jesus say, and this is Matthew 25, 44 and 45, they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger and need him clothed or sick in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Is this just metaphor? Or is there some reality to this in some way, it's literal, in a way maybe we don't fully comprehend. Consider these two texts in, in the light of this question of doing to others is doing to God. 1 Corinthians twelve twenty seven. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. Ephesians four fifteen and 16. Speaking the truth in love... We in all things grow up into him who is our head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Think of this. This is metaphor. It's a metaphor. But as I've said before, metaphor is only metaphor if it's connected to some reality. If there's no reality that it's connected to, it's trying to enlighten us about, it's no longer metaphor. It's fantasy. So what's this reality? Body with many parts. What's, what's, what's trying to tell us? And how is doing something to the body, doing to one of us, doing it to God? Are we connected in some way? Literally, really. Remember this quote out of Evangelism, page 93. In God's plan that every part of his government shall depend on every other part, the whole is a wheel within a wheel, working to the, uh, with entire harmony. He moves upon human forces causing his spirit to touch invisible cords, and the vibration rings to the extremity of the universe. Does the fact that the cords are invisible mean they're not real? Are radio waves not real because they're invisible? Or are they real? Okay. Is there some aspect of God's universe, still not fully understood by us, but maybe we're getting some concept of it, that God is actually connected to every one of us? Consider back again the body of the metaphor. Think about uh, the metaphor of the body. Is every cell in your body part of your body? Can we say, is every cell of your body part of you? Is every cell of your body you? 
So is every one of us part of God, yet none of us are God? If someone were to take a knife and cut off your big toe, would you be hurt, injured? Would you feel pain? Would you feel loss? Does God feel pain and loss when his children are cut off from him by sin and he loses them for eternity? Is there some aspect of how sin not only injures us, but actually hurts God because like your tissues of your body, which are a part of you but not you, we are in some way actually a part of God. Not God, but we're connected to him in some way, and he feels the pain of our loss. Is that possible? If you think that can be real, which I think it is very real, it gives you insight, I think, as to why Satan is so vicious to destroy God's children, because it's his way that he can hurt God and cause him pain. You think about the malicious who will torture somebody just to cause hurt, cut, just to cause that person pain. I think that's Satan. And I think that's why he's seeking to destroy as many as he can. Because I think it really hurts the heart of God. In a way beyond our full comprehension, in a way more than just you hurt over the loss of a loved one you have emotional ties to. I think it's even more than that. Second paragraph. Of course, God himself has insti- uh, had instituted the ritual worship system and designated the, Jer- that Jerusalem, the Jerusalem temple as the appropriate place for it. But the rituals were intended to function within the context of the covenant God had made with, with these people. It was God's covenant with Israel that made it possible for him to dwell among them at the sanctuary temple. So rituals and prayers performed there were valid only if they were expressed. They expressed faithfulness to him and his covenant. People who offered sacrifices without repenting from unjust actions toward other members of the covenant community were performing ritual lies. Thus, their sacrifices were not only invalid, they were also sins. Their ritual actions said they were loyal, but their behavior proved they had broken the covenant. What was the purpose of the rituals? Rituals. Again, to ed- educate. Was there ever salvation benefit in the rituals? No, never. Okay? Again, notice the, the lesson, again, emphasizes repenting from unjust acts toward members of the covenant community. We didn't have to repent from unjust acts toward members of the... No, notice the... And I think it's language here. Repenting from unjust actions towards other members of the covenant community. So now... the, 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 the If we commit unjust actions towards non-Israelites, there's no need to repent from that. Is that the implication? (laughs) I I don't get why they inserted that. It seems like if you're being unjust to anybody, you're being unjust. It's about your character, right? It's very strange. Would the covenant community include more than just the Israelites? Uh, In their definition. I guess you'd have to ask the authors that. The way I read, he he said, would the covenant community intend more than the Israelites? My understanding, it was those who were in the covenant of Abraham, is what what I'm reading this as, the uh, covenant uh, uh, that, uh, yeah, the covenant that circumcision was a sign of, that the Jewish descendants of Abraham were to, that's how I'm reading it. So, no no benefit. Uh, when, When can, though, rituals be beneficial, and when are rituals obstacles? 
Any, any examples or thoughts where rituals like sacrifices, baptism's a ritual, uh, communion ceremony is a ritual, there is no salvation benefit in the wafer, or even participating in making sure you eat the wafer. All that's ritual, to, to do something, to educate, to teach, to lift your heart, to connect. But the salvation comes in not eating the wafer, but eating the bread of heaven who came down. I am the bread of heaven, Jesus, and we must eat his flesh and, and drink his blood. So we have to partake of the word, which was made flesh, which dispels the lies, wins us to trust, and then we open the heart and we partake his life. The life is in the blood. We get a new heart and right spirit. It's no longer I that live. We become partakers of the divine nature. That's the reality. We must have the word and taken in that dispels lies, wins to trust, and we must have a new character, a new life, the life of Jesus living within. That's the reality. That's salvation. The rituals can teach us, help us understand what we're trying to, but there's no salvation in the ritual, is there? So, so it can be beneficial if it educates, but it can be an obstacle if it becomes a means to an end. So from my book, The uh, God-Shaped Heart, I explore ritual and metaphor, I have a whole chapter on it, but in just three paragraphs out of the book, page 164, um, where I talk about, and then give a little, a little metaphor, but when symbolism is clung to in minds that remain infected with imposed law constructs, rules that you have to keep, not only is healing impaired, but also division and fragmentation is incited or are incited. Imagine that during the Dark Ages, when the Black Death was ravaging millions, we had a cure, penicillin, an antibiotic that cures bacterial infections, and wanted to teach people how to identify the symptoms of the disease so that they could take the medicine if symptoms appeared. We want that for people. But because the masses could not read, uh, the use of books, magazines, and flyers would do no good. Therefore, we devise a play, a little drama, to act out what to do in case the sickness arises. We have actors come on stage and with red circles drawn on their skin, they act feverish and weak. Another actor playing the role of healer, perhaps in a white robe, seeks the, sees the symptoms and pulls out a red jelly bean, symbolic of the penicillin in its red capsule, and gives it to the sick ones. Then the red marks are washed off and those who were formerly sick jump up and dance with joy. A simple play to illustrate a simple lesson. If you get these symptoms, take the remedy and you'll get well. As the years go by and the play is enacted from town to town, one group runs out of red jelly beans and instead use blue ones. But this is met with stern opposition from members of the original acting troupe who have always used only red jelly beans. They insist that only red jelly beans be used because the penicillin capsules are red and red more closely represents the reality. Soon the two groups split, forming separate acting companies, each claiming that only their play rightly teaches how to be saved from the plague. Does it really matter if the jelly bean is red or blue? so long as the people actually take the antibiotic when the disease occurs. Or worse, what happens if people forgot reality and believed that there was some potency and power in the ritual so they religiously, prayerfully ingest jelly beans but fail to ever take the antibiotic? They would have a form of godliness but no power. This is exactly the state of Christianity today, stuck in forms of religion but devoid of the actual healing power of God because they've been taught a legal system 
based on rituals and rules that has no real power to heal hearts. And you, I go on in the book to describe the metaphor applying it to baptism by immersion or sprinkling. You understand baptism in water has no power to heal hearts and minds. It's a symbol of baptism or immersion of your heart and mind in the Holy Spirit, dying to the old life and rising, immersed with a new heart. That baptism is required for salvation, baptism in the Spirit. Water is not. That's how the thief on the cross can be saved, never baptized. And others. And I go on to explain in the book how likely the sprinkling came about. It was during the time of the Christians being persecuted and, and, and uh, martyred in the arenas of Rome. And they were imprisoned in the arenas. And, they're, and, they're, and some go out and get fed to the lions. And they're singing. And their loved ones are still in the dungeons below. And people who don't know the gospel, how can they not be terrified? And the witnesses below share the gospel. And these people go, I want to give my heart to Jesus. Well, we have a cup of water. We don't have a pool. We can, we don't have, we can't, they're not going to let us go over to River Jordan. Well, I'm going to be baptized as much as possible. Okay. And they sprinkle some water on them to symbolically represent the cleansing that comes. It was a symbol that gave them hope and peace. And this is likely how the sprinkling came. But then there was division because that went on for a good period of time and people used that method. Tuesday's lesson, first paragraph. God has provided powerful evidence that the Judeans, the, um, that the Judeans, the accused, are guilty of breach of contract. And he has appealed to them to reform. This appeal suggests that there is hope. After all, why urge a criminal deserving execution to change his ways? How could a prisoner on death row rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow? When, but God, when God says, come now, let us argue it out, we can see the Lord still seeking to reason with his people, still seeking to get them to repent and turn from their evil ways, no matter how degenerate they have become. So I, I like the idea of bringing in the, the God wanting to reason and get people to turn their hearts around. But what uh, core lie is embedded in this paragraph? Did you hear one? That God is the one who accuses. Okay, when the God's the accuser. Okay, good. Why, why would, what, what else? God's law functions like the problem of sin is what? That we are criminals on death row waiting execution by the lawgiver. And deserving of execution by the lawgiver. This is the idea. This is Satan's lie from the beginning. Human beings, I want to make this very clear, are not criminals on death row waiting execution by the heavenly government. That is a lie. We are children of God infected with a terminal condition that without remedy will result in our death. As the Bible says, we're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We're born with a terminal condition we didn't choose. And without Christ, we die from the condition. We don't die from the hand of God. And until we reject this imposed law lie and embrace the truth about God's law, which is the design laws of the universe expressed as his character built into reality, then we will never finish the work and take the message of mercy to the world. Um, next paragraph. It says, uh, The Lord says to them that your red sin shall become white. Why are sins red? Because red is the color of blood, blood guilt, that covers the hands of the people. White, by contrast, is the color of purity, the absence of blood guilt. Here, God is offering to change them. This is the kind of language King David used when he cried out to God for forgiveness of his sins 
the, the, the sin of taking Bathsheba and destroying her husband. In Isaiah 118, God's argument is an offer to forgive his people. Interesting. Do you understand the corruption of this paragraph? Okay. I do like the focus that God's offering to change them. That's good. I'm glad that was stated in there. But the lesson becomes very less clear when it confuses the language about forgiveness. Without explaining the right, the right meaning, particularly immediately after the paragraph of suggesting we're criminals on death row. It get, leads to this idea that forgiveness is some legal adjustment. It's not. What do you think of the, the idea, though? God is offering to forgive his people, or is it more likely, and you decide, is God offering to forgive, or has God forgiven his people and is offering to heal and save them if they will let him? Okay. The penal legal lie based, based on the lie about God's law sees sin as a legal problem, and therefore salvation is securing God's legal pardon or forgiveness. So the sacrifice of Christ is the legal means to pay the legal penalty so the sovereign of the universe can legally offer you, and without that, he can't do it. He's restrained by this law. It will be unjust for him to offer you pardon. And so the whole plan of salvation is to secure from God forgiveness. It's a big fraud. It's a lie. God's forgiveness was never lacking in our salvation. What was lacking was our trust of God and a remedy that would cure us. That's what was lacking. Christ came to destroy lies, win its trust, and procure a remedy that actually heals our hearts and minds. So we are forgiven by God, and I think it's important to say that when we're in sin, when we haven't been reconciled, when we yet don't know him, in our guilt, in our shame, in our misunderstanding, when we're filled with fear, when we falsely believe the lies, we think God's against us, he's out to punish us, we, we don't deserve anything else, we have all this internal condemnation, in that distorted mindset, it is important to hear the words, neither do I condemn you. It is important to hear the words, I forgive you. People, that, that's an important truth. People need that to know God forgives them, and he does. But it was never necessary to get Jesus to do something to God to procure that forgiveness. Oh, i got to jump ahead. Uh, we're going to go to Wednesday's lesson. I'm trying to move through in the last few minutes. It says, um, Notice the logic of Isaiah 1, 19 and 20. If the people choose to be willing to be obedient to God, they will eat of the land. By contrast, if they refuse his offering of restoration and rebel against him, they will be eaten by the sword. About conditional blessings and cursings. This particular promise, I believe, was not simply, is not a promise to every human being. I think this was a promise to the nation of Israel. This was focused on the Old Testament reality of keeping open the avenue. If you're faithful and do what you say, I will maintain and bless you because the Messiah is coming through you. This is what the whole book of Isaiah is about. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and so forth. I will, but if you are not faithful, then I will let you be taken captivity and through your remnant the Messiah will come. And I think that's what that this that's contextually, I think it's not where if you do good and if you obey the Lord, you are promised health and wealth. Job refutes that. The book of Job refutes that. He was righteous in all his ways. He did he had serious problems. Um who sinned this man was born blind. Neither. Okay? We can have health health problems and wealth problems and still be righteous. So we don't want to buy into the idea that we have a guaranteed good outcome if we simply are obedient to the Lord. It's not true. In this context, for this purpose, God is saying, if you're faithful, I will bless and protect you because the Messiah is coming through. If not, we'll have to work through the other means of a remnant. Last paragraph. 
It says, scholars have found that these, uh, talking about the elements of a contract, that these elements of a contract appear in the same order in political treaties involved, uh, involving non-Israelite peoples, such as the Hittites. So for establishing God's covenant with Israel, he used a form they would understand and would impress upon them as forcefully as possible the nature and the consequences of the mutually binding relationship into which they were entering. The potential benefits of the covenant were staggering. And he goes, they're talking about, in the paragraph before, the legal elements of the covenant and the contract. This was, this is what God did. He, he, he fit it to the, to the way the law worked in the, in the countries around them. Is the covenant with God a legal transaction? When we enter, notice it says a mutually binding relationship. When we enter a covenant with God, do we bind him to some legal requirement in some way? Consider a marriage covenant for a moment. Well, in our society today, marriage does contain a lot of legalities like next of kin rights and not testify in court. These are all added by modern society. In God's original design, was the marriage covenant a legal transaction? Yes or no? Legal? No. No, not legal. Okay. Um, What about the new covenant? It says in Hebrews, he will write his law on our hearts and minds. Is that a legal transaction? What is the problem if we construe the new covenant as a legal transaction? Well, let's use the metaphor of the marriage covenant. What would happen if your marriage, if at your marriage, at the ceremony, when you're being married, there's not a pastor there, there's a lawyer there. And he pulls out a legal document, kind of like closing on a mortgage. And it starts out reading uh, in front of the witnesses, because the witness is there to sign with a notary. This contract of marriage, uh, this contract of marriage between Mr. Jones, henceforth known as Party A, and Miss Smith, henceforth known as Party B, is effective today, December 19, 2020. As of the effective date of this contract, all properties of Party A and Party B shall merge into the new corporate entity, henceforth known as Corporate C. Uh, both parties A and party B will have equal rights and ownership of all assets contained within corporate C, and neither party A or party B may remove assets from corporate C without prior written consent of either party. How would you like a marriage like that? And it goes on from there. Of all the duties and responsibilities and the legal binding qualities, and there even have penalty qualities, and if either party A or party B should breach this contract, then they would be held in, in contempt, and they would be taken before a public place and executed. <laughs> because that is the minimum penalty for breaking our covenant with God, isn't it? Execution, right? That's the legal penalty. He must, he must inflict it. How would you like a marriage covenant like that? You see, this is the corruption that Satan infects into the hearts of minds when he thinks that our covenant with God is legal. It's not legal. It's relational. It's a commitment. It's a surrender. It's a uniting of heart, mind, and spirit with our Creator. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are a God of truth and love and that you have sent Jesus to be the light of the world, to reveal the truth about who you are and to achieve the remedy to this terrible terminal sin condition that we could never fix. We open our hearts to you now and ask that your spirit will be poured out and your law of love and truth and liberty will be reproduced in us, that we will live in harmony with your kingdom. And as the world attacks and we see all the injustices and unfairnesses happening around us, that we will not be sucked in to retaliate, but we will dive deeper into our love relationship with you 
and that we will embrace your principles and love those that seek to hurt us, Lord. We don't have the power within ourselves, but we ask for your power to enable us to to be these lights, the unity of love in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen.